Hello and welcome. I'm Gaurav Dubey, founder and executive producer of Biolitics Podcast and Biolitics.org, and I'm proud to present to you the pilot episode of Biolitics Studio Sessions, featuring Dispensary 33 and New Age Care Medical Dispensary here in Illinois. It's time to have an intellectual and scientific discussion about medical cannabis. Just a quick note for all our listeners about an exciting legislative development that has transpired between the recording, mastering, and production of this episode. SB 10 has passed in Illinois. The bill effectively extends the Illinois Medical Cannabis Pilot Program into 2020. It adds PTSD to the list of qualifying conditions, and it decriminalizes the possession of small amounts of medical cannabis or cannabis here in Illinois. Thank you all so much for listening. And now, without further ado, I'd like to present to you our pilot episode of Biolitics Studio Sessions. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back, everybody. This is Biolitics Sessions. I'm calling it that because these are the studio sessions that go into making an actual Biolitics episode, which you will hear soon. And today I'm very fortunate to have three amazing guests, three powerhouses and leaders, I would say, in the cannabis, medical cannabis movement here in Chicago. They're very knowledgeable, and I'm very excited to speak with them as we put together this medical marijuana podcast in regards to the, the medical cannabis program here in Chicago. So we have three people here today. I want to say hello to, let's start from my right, Renzo. Say hello. You want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Renzo. I'm a dispensary agent at Dispensary 33 in Andersonville. Uh, we're the first dispensary, and yeah, it's a, it's a great place. Definitely check it out um, if you're interested in medical cannabis and happen to live on the north side or anywhere else in the city for that matter or the suburbs. Uh, we offer excellent services. That's great. Another guest we have here today through the Healing Clinic, their holistic health coach and nutritionist uh, that, they, that they had on site there. Her name was Jen King. She has a very, very special, very incredible holistic health service that she offers. And uh, I want to I say hello. Thanks for having Thanks Hi. for coming. Hi. Yeah, I'm, I definitely have a unique role in this industry. Um, I am aligned with New Age Care, which is a uh, cannabis dispensary in Mount Prospect, Illinois. And I work with their clients or their patients. Um, after they are feeling that relief and feeling um, the relief from the medicine to get to take that health a little bit further into deeper layers of healing. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Jen. And our last guest here, I'm told he's quite knowledgeable in quite a few aspects of the, of the medical cannabis industry. His name is Richard. He's also from Dispensary 33. Richard, thanks for joining us. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm with uh, Dispensary 33. I handle... Uh, uh, trading, patient consultations, and uh, product purchasing for Dispensary 33. I've been working in the cannabis industry, in the legal cannabis industry, since the late 90s in several states and markets, uh, and now uh, here in Illinois, where I'm originally from, in Chicago. That's really great. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today, uh, joining us here today. And Chicago is the topic of conversation. You know, we're one of the new, newer medical cannabis states, and we currently have a medical cannabis pilot program that we are undergoing right now. Uh, Jen, can you tell us a little bit more about this medical cannabis pilot? What does that mean? Are we a medical state? Are we not a medical state? What's going to happen? Well, we are a medical state, um, but for an interim, we are in a pilot program, so there is a end date on it, and hopefully our governor will renew that date as it's growing uh, pretty close. Um, but it, we're just in a temporary medical state at this point. 
Right, sounds good. So what determines if we get to move on in the movement or, or if it has to end after the program <laughs> you know, reaches its interim end? Yeah, um, I think Richard could probably answer that deeper, um, but I would imagine it's uh, we have to really hope that our governor supports this, uh, this, this pilot program and sees the benefits of what has been going on and wants to continue uh, the program and extend it throughout. Okay, of course. Yeah, we'll definitely pick that up a little bit later. Uh, Jen, you said you play a very unique role I do. As, a, <laughs> as a cannabis therapy provider. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? I can. So I'm a health and wellness coach. I work with chronic disease patients who are looking to integrate um, n- functional nutrition, uh, diet and lifestyle changes into their health routine along with their the other um, uh, modalities that they have on staff, their physicians, their chiropractors, their acupuncturists, or whatever is already working with them. Um, I am, uh, I work with patients who are in one state of health and are looking to be in another, and I help them connect those dots. Um, I fill in that gap between the physician and what those, uh, the, the instructions the physician usually gives the patient to go home. I fill in the gaps to help that patient be able to integrate the changes they need in the life to be able to um, achieve the, 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 the weight loss or lowering the blood pressure or whatever that specific uh, patient needs. Uh, I work one-on-one in a very tailored way with them. It's really incredible, you know, when normally I think of a patient going to the doctor, it just involves the patient maybe in the doctor, mm-hmm. maybe a nurse. Yeah. But now you're talking about a very diverse, multifaceted, multidimensional mm-hmm. system of healthcare that they're having access to. So why why so many different, you know, why are there so many different players involved? Everyone's different. We are all made up of um, different genetics, different environments, different uh, formulas that each person has and um, uh, dependent on what their their conditions and diseases are. There are, we've been um, kind of trained in thinking that the doctor is, and they are a very important part of the process, but it's not the only, right? If a, if a doctor is asking Bob to lose some weight and he goes home, but his refrigerator is still the same and his lifestyle is still the same and doctor wants him to come back in four weeks with that weight lost, um, but he doesn't have the tools to be able to do that. Health coaching fills in that gap and helps hold the hand of that uh, that patient or that client to really figure out what works for them specifically. That's really great. And speaking of weight loss, actually, <laughs> it's something I kind of wanted to ask you. So I assume you have patients that are trying to lose weight. Sure. Do you Are you able to incorporate cannabis? I know it's very infamous for, you know, making you get the munchies and really <laughs> stimulate appetite. Are you still able to have these patients eat healthier and make them lose weight, even though that that's a side effect of the plant? We love the fact that cannabis helps um, patients have the munchies because a lot of patients are needing appetite uh, stimulants so that they, let's say someone going through cancer therapy, are needing to eat, and that's a really good thing. And so when they finally do get those munchies, what I work with these patients, instead of reaching for the potato chips or the brownies, we work on the other foods that can help nourish them from the inside out. Uh, And cannabis is a good support in that because if you have someone who does not have an appetite, getting the the nutrients they need for their body to survive whatever um, procedures or therapies that they are going on um, is really important. That's really incredible. You know, you're really talking about cannabis in a completely different light. Uh, Before I open it up and and move on to Renzo, I did want to ask you, 
would you say that medical cannabis is is good for you or are we looking at it or you know cannabis itself do you think the plant has beneficial properties to where it'd be actually good for your health or is this just an alternative that's the lesser of two evils well the plant itself is um, filled with uh, macro and micronutrients you can see in hemp seeds and hemp oils um, they're filled with uh, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, uh, complete protein. So the plant itself is very nutritious. Uh, and then we've got the uh, endocannabinoid system that we all have, um, a part of our nervous system. So um, just that fact alone, that we have receptors throughout our body that want the endocannabinoids um, in, that this plant, along with other plants, have, um, that tells me that it's, you know, I think as medicine evolves, uh, we'll see cannabis as more as like, more like a supplement, right? Where yeah. you you have uh, you can finally craft what your needs are, just the way you would with um, other supplements. With, right. If it's a part of our uh, nervous system that we've got these receptors, and I think that's pretty evident that it is a healthy thing for all of us. Wow! Thank you so much, mm-hmm. and for our listeners to give them a, you know their their daily dose of science. The endocannabinoid system is actually an endogenous, meaning it's already intrinsic or in our body system of receptors that we have. Now, if you want to think of receptors as the keys and the neurotransmitters as the locks that go into these keys and unlock or cause a cascade or biological mechanism that causes you to feel a certain way or cause different changes to go on in your body biochemically, neurochemically, all these different ways. And so it turns out your body already has the locks that the cannabis plant produces the keys for Mm -hmm. because your body naturally produces those keys. Your body naturally produces its own endocannabinoids, just like your body produces its own endorphins. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Vicodin will also release endorphins, you know, so it's kind of like we create these drugs to manipulate these receptor systems. So the endocannabinoid system is very diverse and there Mm -hmm. are receptors everywhere from your brain to your gut. Is Is that correct? That's correct. And these receptors regulate homeostasis, which is your equilibrium. So uh, just like nutrition helps regulate your homeostasis with the, um, we we have very specific nutrients that we need in a specific balance for each person. Um, So homeostasis, nutrition and and, uh, cannabis therapy really hold hand in hand. It's really great. So it sounds like cannabis seems to be very good for you. It's working well for your patients. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. So we would ideally want this movement to continue. We would ideally want this pilot program to push forward. So Richard, I know that you're a little bit more apprised to the politics of all this. What will it take for this movement to continue and for this to become a permanent part of our state? I mean, there's a couple of things that we have to look at. Um, First of all, it is a pilot program. It is not unique right, for this kind of program to be a pilot program. Lots of laws that we pass have sunset clauses. Um, It's kind of how we introduce new laws. So um, I think it's part of the normal process. Well, what we need to show the state and what we need to show the legislature, right, um, um, is that the program is successful and and that it fulfills a legitimate need in the state of Illinois. Now, if you work in the industry, if you're a patient, um, it's obvious and apparent, right? Um, it's 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 kind of the mainstream you know of the state uh, that we that we sort of need to convince and we we can't deny that so far governor rauner has uh um not helped the process any um 
So it's going to go through the legislature. It's going to go up to a vote. The, the governor is going to have a chance to veto this vote. The legislature is then going to have a chance to supersede his veto. We, we have a Democratic supermajority um, in our state legislature. We can definitely go over the governor's head. But that's a big political move. That's not something right. that the state legislature wants to do on a regular basis. It depends on how obstructionist the governor, the governor is going to maintain his position at. Um, The Cannabis uh, Advisory Board right now is considering, I believe, 12 new conditions to be added. Um, This is the third attempt um, um, by the industry and advocates in general. Um, The governor has has denied it uh, twice. Um, I will note that it's it's not the governor's job to deny it. It's the head of the Department of Public Health. But for whatever reason, the governor has spoken out on it. so we'll see what happens this time. If, if we have a different outcome this time, the Cannabis Advisory Board is, I believe, 12 members right now comprised major, – the majority is comprised of medical professionals. There's a Great. neurologist. There's a medical ethics uh, professor. There's, a, there's an oncologist. Um, there are several uh, nurse practitioners or, or RNs. Um, there are only a couple of patient advocates on this board. So this is a medical opinion of theirs that, that these need to be added. Um, we think so far the decision on the 39 conditions that are out there is, is largely political. I don't think anyone would really deny that what ends up on that list is, is political um, or what doesn't end up on that list, I should say. Um, so right now, that's that's a big part of our advocacy. Like, does the state know that we're here? Um, does the state know that we are helping people? Um, and does the state truly understand the legitimate need, right? We don't want them to make the laws any laxer. That's not what we're asking for. We're asking you to broaden access, right? Keep the laws on us, on the dispensary end, on the cultivation end. Keep them strict. That's fine. We can adhere to the laws. The guys who started this industry in Illinois are all very good at adhering to regulations. Um, That's that's how you got an application approved. So um, keep the laws as as, as strict as as makes sense. um, but but expand access. Just give people more access. You know, definitely. Uh, and there's a lot of problems with it. And so when it goes back up, what's going to happen is people are going to want to make changes to it. That's why you have a pilot program. So right. we look at it and we say, hey, look, this is what worked. This is what didn't work. Right. Um, what changes are we going to make? And let's put it back to the legislature. Now it passed the first time. Um, so. I have every reason to believe uh, that it will pass the second time. The The big question mark in everybody's mind is, is what gov- what's Governor Rauner's position on it? Right. And a lot of people in the industry are very um, disappointed with, with the way he's been so far. Um, but I, I, I will say that he hasn't been – he hasn't tried to hurt the program. He hasn't tried to help the program, but he hasn't tried to hurt the program That's good. yet. Um, right. Yeah. Um, but he makes everybody very nervous. And, right. and, and anyone with, you know, anyone who follows it even even casually is going to understand that. Why? Why? Why that trepidation is there. I completely agree. Now, Renzo, I know you yourself have uh, quite a political background. I know that you used to intern for now President Obama when he was still a senator. I, I have to say I was pretty surprised and freaked out a little bit when I saw your profile picture on Facebook. It's uh, you shaking hands with the president on the on the steps of the Capitol. Very, very interesting. So with your experience and, you know, doing that internship and, and what you know now, working at Dispensary 33, can you comment a little bit on the, on the politics of this whole situation and, and why we are in the situation we're in, where so many patients are getting the, the help that they need, the relief that they need, but there's still, even in 2016, so much opposition. Uh, you know, what was the atmosphere when you were working, when this topic came up and where you were, and, and what can you comment on this? Yeah, so in, in 2008, I had an internship in D.C. with uh, then-Senator Obama, 
And yeah, I mean, uh, cannabis was not uh, a major political issue at the national level. Um, you know, DC had 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 passed a law, but yeah, no, I mean, as far as the, the where we have evolved to now, where the discussion is now, um, no, yeah, we were we were light here, light years behind uh, back then. But yeah, now, now here in Illinois, um, as Rich talked about earlier, uh, you know, the governor governor appointees um, play a major role in in policy and, and how laws are are, are drafted and, and passed and enforced for that matter. Um, so yeah, here here in Illinois, there is um, I think there, there's been really good results so far. Um, me coming not only from a political background, from also but also from a social service background. Um, you know, I've been able to see patients coming in now. Um, you know, saying they don't take this uh, painkiller, they don't take that painkiller. Um, they get to sleep a full night. Uh, things like that, uh, small things like that, in terms of quality of life, um, they've they've improved leaps and bounds. And 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 to be able to be part of that is, is something special. That's really incredible. And, you know, we talk about the relief gained, you know, we talk about the symptoms treated and the diversity of that is really quite incredible. And Jen, seeing so many patients firsthand, what are the types of patients that you see the most in your clinic? What are the types of symptoms? So um, symptoms is the right thing because we've got a variety of conditions and a variety of people. I mean, we've got Young, old, men, women, I mean, it's... Uh, children. Children, right. There is uh, there is just such a big pool of patients that are coming through, but their symptoms are all very similar. Pain is the number one, sleep, um, nausea. So that's what we really focus on uh, when we're meeting patients for the first time is to really focus in on what are their symptoms and how can we steer them into the direction and build a plan a tailored plan with cannabis uh, therapy for them. So I know since you focus on holistic care, mm -hmm. uh, what is your opinion on you know these drug companies? They're trying mm -hmm. very hard to create drugs that act on this endocannabinoid system. Now, personally, as you know, a former neuroscientist, a published neuroscientist, and stem cell biologist, I have a very you know thorough understanding of what goes into creating a drug, mm -hmm. the forces behind it. You know, uh, on average, it costs one billion dollars to create a drug. Nine in ten drugs fail. Wow. So if you do the math, you lose nine billion dollars. So that one billion dollar drug better be Lipitor if you wanna, you know, if you wanna survive uh, this this industry. So that being the case, you know, on our biotics.org, you can find various articles, you know, very high quality scientific journalism written to you by scientists or people that understand scientific literature. And one of the first articles I wrote was uh, based off an article I read in the Independent that said cannabis-based painkiller causes brain death. And I was very confused. I read the article, and they actually went back and didn't retract the article, but edited it, you know. And they said it was a, you know, cannabinoid-based painkiller, which is completely different. You know, th that wording, although subtle, is completely different. If you're creating a synthetic drug that's acting on this endocannabinoid system in our body that we don't even understand because we haven't funded or allowed research on it, by natural items that already are okay, like cannabis, to act on that system. You know, instead, people are trying to create these drugs, and they say that, you know, maybe we can take out the THC to not make it psychoactive, or, you know, what is what is your thought compared, you know, as far as like, creating a drug that works on this system versus using the whole plant? Well, I'll compare it to an orange. You can extract the vitamin C from an orange, but the orange in its whole entirety is going to give you uh, more full focused nutrients than just the vitamin C on its own. So it's the same concept with the whole plant treatment of cannabis. Um, so when you're trying to extract just one component of it, um, I mean, with like, like, for instance, the CBD oils that are very popular right now that are kind of covered under that hemp act so that they are 
more accessible to the general public. Um, they are great, but they're still extracting just one cannabinoid right. from a full plant. When when you use the full plant, there is an entourage effect with uh, the varieties of cannabinoids that are, are uh, uh, in that plant. So nature is always they nature always knows best right right so that's kind of the, the fallback there yeah i mean if i could inter- interject Please. on that a little bit I, I i think so i mean there's a bunch of studies out there right now whole plant extract compared to marinol whole plant extract compared to sativex uh epidolix right which is the real name of, of marinol i believe um these are all cannabis-based drugs uh they're synthetic cannabinoids right, right? they're exactly. synthetic cannabinoids uh except i think sativex is a one-to-one whole plant extract that's gw pharma out of the right. uk it's had the best results Correct. all the other ones like marinol they're typically shown anywhere from 30 some to 50 some percent less effective right when when we when we when we try them side by side with whole plant extract my, my, my main problem with industrial hemp oil is it, it's not actually a CBD isolated, right? If you have less than 0.5% uh, THC, I'm sorry, less than 0.05% THC in a plant, that's called hemp, right? right. Regardless, it's, it's the same plant. Right. Um, it's not that those are ineffective. It's that the amounts that you have to use when you're using industrial hemp are absolutely enormous. Um, and it, it's just not feasible. It's, right. it's just not feasible. And so... Um, big pharma has this way of, and, and you, you know this, right, with your background, um, they believe in single molecule. They believe right. when you reduce it to a single molecule, then you can control it, and then you can um, um, you can understand its mechanism, right? Um, but, but, but as you were talking about with the entourage effect, we, we understand that it's more complicated than that with cannabis. That being said, I do believe in isolating cannabinoid compounds. I do believe in distilling and reformulating and compounding oils, Um, um even though there's a lot that we don't understand, um, the minor cannabinoids play a role for sure in Congress. Um, um, but the major cannabinoids, their their mechanisms are are we're starting to understand them much much better. And when we talk about the entourage effect, we talk about it like it's a, a general sort of synergy, right? And and to a large degree, it must be. Um, um, but we also know the specific ways that those play, right? We, we know that, that THC is a partial agonist at both CB1 and CB2 receptor sites. Right. We know that CBN is a degradation byproduct of THC and has a higher affinity for the CB2 sites. And then we know that CBD does not act on any uh, in either of those two sites, at least. It acts on other sites. But what happens is in high doses, it becomes an antagonist at CB1 sites to THC. And at low doses, it, 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 it increases the affinity. It becomes an agonist, right? That's so, beautiful. So my, my point is that we, when we talk about the entourage effect, and Mishulam was brilliant, and the entourage effect was brilliant, but I would really like professionals to start talking about it in like, um, it's not a generic synergy. It's it's an actual thing that we actually know about, um, and it can be manipulated, right? And so depending on the type of oil that I need to we, we need to create or we need to use or, or for for whatever patient, we we're we're really close to very specifically uh, manipulating those, right? Uh, I I can I can make an oil that's twenty to one, right? Right. Um, and the one place we draw the line is we don't want to use industrial hemp oil. The, the amount of THC that that's brought into that is, is not it's not it's not worth it. It's, it's the amounts that you have to consume are insane. So right, um, whole plant extract is is has been empirically proven over and over and over again. Right, we mm-hmm. don't have the studies here in the United States, but the UK does, uh, Israel does, uh, the Netherlands do, Spain does, and I find it hard to believe that their science is that much worse than that of the United States. Actually, right? Israel has been making some really great breakthroughs. If you watch the Sanjay Gupta, he has a three-part documentary sure, over weed. years, right, exactly, mm-hmm. weed. They talk about the patients in Israel and how much benefit that they're receiving. Now, there's two things I wanted to quickly bring up before I go back to Renzo. And there's this quote from Cresco Labs that I saw this morning on uh, 
uh, Facebook and uh, in one of the medical cannabis groups I'm in. And in regards to this entourage effect, this is what they said. If cannabis was a musical act, THC would be the lead singer and well-known rock star of the plant. THC is a psychoactive component. THC's backup singers would include other cannabinoids like CBD, CBC, CBN, and CBG. The band's group of musicians would be rounded out with an 80 or so member-sized symphony orchestra of cannabinoid chemicals, which produce a sound unique to each plant's cannabinoid profile. So I think that's really beautiful because that's really what it is. You know, every plant is so diverse. Each strain is so diverse. You know, people say like, oh, I tried weed but didn't like it. It's like, well, I'd be willing to bet, you know, if you tried a hundred different strands, perhaps you might find one you like. Maybe not, you know, it's not for everybody. But if you just tried it once, you tr it's a needle in a haystack kind of situation, you know. And in regards to THC and CBD, certain, you know, uh, new research shows that the delivery of CBD into your body and into those receptors is actually increased synergistically by THC. So when we just give people CBD oil, the efficaciousness and efficacy of CBD is increased by THC. So we think THC has no effect or we have this, you know, bad taste in our mouth because it gets you quote unquote high, but it actually has a lot of, of medical benefits as well that I feel like are, are understated. It, it, has, it has more. <laughs> right, it has a wider range of of things that it that it is medicinally applicable for, and it's one of the big things that we we fight with all the time uh, in our own discussions when we're trying to educate patients. Is patients come in and they're like, "Hey, I want CBD. What do you have? I have peripheral neuropathy. Neuropathy, brother, you don't need CBD. <laughs> you need THC. We know this. You know, right. um, you you want a long term plan to bring down inflammation? Okay, let's 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 do CBD. We can do that. I can do that in four or five months. It depends on the person. If it's RA, if it's autoimmune, whatever. Um, but you have you have nausea. You have Crohn's. You have Crohn's. That's THC, brother. Like, I don't know why uh, everyone thinks. I know Crohn's is marked by chronic levels of inflammation. You know, I I understand what Crohn's is. Um, and and the reason I can so confidently say that is because there has only been one double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized human clinical trial published in a peer-reviewed journal on the topic. And it was uh, out of Israel, and they showed 45% of this pool group um, complete remission, right? Wow. Complete remission. And 45%, that's a, that's a that's, huge that's number. That's huge. Um, uh, my, my only issue with it is that the sample size is small. But right. if you're going to let that limit you, almost every cannabis study is... is, is They're almost is all under 200. Exactly. Right. And so the sample size is small. And, and because of how safe cannabis is, we said, you know what? We can experiment with this when we have Crohn's patients. We can do this. Um, if it was a dangerous drug, right, how could I go off of one clinical trial? I, right. I, maybe I can't, you know, of, of 40 people or something like that. Um, um, but otherwise... Uh, and, and so we try it. We we tried we tried this program. It's a very detailed study, and so um, we found amazing success doing this. Right. You know? um, and it's still something that we we debate with patients all the time. They they're they're like, oh, I have I have this issue. I need CBD. Yeah. And we're kind of like, no, you need you need some CBD, right? Even when I say, hey, right. you need THC. What what I mean is, you need a greater amount of THC than CBD. You always need some CBD, right? Right. Uh, even if it's in trace amounts, undetectable amounts, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think it's it's largely misunderstood because, you know, CBD gets mad play on the radio, <laughs> on the television, in the newspapers because of this idea that it doesn't get you high. And I understand the value in that, but like 
you get high from your fentanyl patch, you get high <laughs> from your oxycontin, you know, and and you get addicted, and and some of the some of that kind of high like is it's a misunderstanding of how mild the psychotropic effects of cannabis True. actually are right exactly now renzo i wanted to ask you you know you work at dispensary 33 how much patient interaction do you have and what has been your experience so far working at you know at one of the one of the forerunning cannabis you know uh, dispensaries in chicago yeah, working at Dispensary 33, we uh, we see everything. We see all income levels uh, in terms of racial, ethnic backgrounds, um, conditions, uh, literally everything. Uh, it, it's, it's really a, a practice in the diversity that is Chicago. Um, and yeah, we see everything. Uh, we see people not only from Chicago, but they're coming in from the suburbs. Um, we, you know, we've seen patients coming from Champaign. Uh, we're talking hours away, uh, wow. all the way to the north side, yeah, to, to, to get medicine. And uh, it's been a great experience. Uh, Rich runs a very tight ship uh, along with uh, the, the management team with Air. Uh, they're, they're very hands-on. Uh, they know what they're doing, uh, and I think you know they have experience uh, doing this type of work. And, and yeah, they they run a tight ship, and um, uh, all the dispensary agents we're we're all very knowledgeable. We all know kind of what we're talking about. Um, yeah, because we're looking at papers, uh, and we're we're definitely uh, not only with the, with the really intense training that we do, but uh, you know, continued education. Um, you know. Us on our own, just being genuinely interested in the topic, uh, we go out and, and yeah, learning is a continuing thing for us. Um, but yeah, working at Dispensary 33, we see everything. And um, yeah, like I said earlier, being able to bring um, patients to a point where they can have a, a normal day, um, that's huge. That's huge for patients. And, uh, you know, cannabis does that for them. Um, and to be able to bring patients uh, and, and take them away from the opioids um, and, and all the stuff that comes with that, the addiction, um, it, it's really a great opportunity. I can't, I can't, I still to this day, I'm, I'm still pinching myself to be able to tell my, or to, to be able to say that I'm a dispensary agent um, at Chicago's first dispensary. And um, yeah, we, we, we do. We do great work, and uh, we wouldn't be able to hear, do this work without the activism, without the patients um, really being out there in front. Um, yeah, it, it's been a great experience. That's incredible. It definitely has been, as I talked about with Feliza last time, a patient-driven movement. That is most definitely true. You know, patients realize that, like, you know, we live in a time where this is just ridiculous. Like, we need to do something about this. We need to have access. We need to feel better because if medicine isn't supposed to make you feel better then what is it supposed to do you know what i mean if it's supposed to heal you and, and make you make you better then what you know what's been your experience especially with the chronic pain patients like like well how's the transformation been how, how gratifying is it doing what you're doing it, it's unbelievable you know we have the honor of seeing these patients uh, more regularly than than their doctors do right and they come in and they spend time first they tell us their stories which are all unique and heartbreaking but they're also very similar Frustration with the, the whole system, not feeling heard, being on medications that they don't want to be on, having the medications feel worse than the disease in itself. You know, we've had um, one of the, the cooler experiences is watching one of my um, uh, colleagues take a phone call from a, a new patient, a 70-year-old woman who came in with her son the day before uh, to start cannabis. She, I believe, was going through some cancer treatments, but lots of chronic pain. And she had just smoked and, and had called us in a panic because she felt very weird and she was panicking. She didn't know what to do. And as I'm watching and listening to uh, my colleague Farah go through the process, talking to this woman and really just deconstructing what the situation is and where she's at. And by the end of the conversation, it was not that she was feeling, uh, pain. It was that she wasn't feeling any pain at all. And this, this was such a new feeling for her that it was scary. 
And so we get to see these transitions. Um, Yeah, imagine that, a 70-year-old woman. Like, what what a crazy experience. So we get get the honor of seeing this pretty miraculous transformations in a lot of patients, Crohn's patients being one of our... Um, one of the ones I think that that see the most uh, transformation because they've been living with pain for so long and then all of a sudden they've got more tools in their arsenal to be able to treat themselves and treat this pain and find right. the relief and it's it's really humbling to to be a part of that process. Yeah, that's really incredible. I mean, I couldn't just just for those few days I couldn't believe it. You know, it's never really leaves your mind. Mm-hmm. It's always on your mind. You know, even if it's you're able to have the fortune of pushing it back in your mind, it's not like absolutely on the forefront of your thinking. Like it's still there. Well, it became your normal, right? Your pain was your normal. That's the thing. The patients that are coming through, they're so used to this pain that is it is their their normal. So wow. when they get to raise above that uh, or get through that um it just it's a game changer it's yeah. a, it's and it's it's pretty incredible when you're when you're working with people who have never tried this medicine before right. so it's um it's cool so richard uh you know i wanted to talk to you a little bit more about you know clearly this this medicine is needed clearly that you know, we, we need distribution and access to be a greater tool. But what are some of the biggest barriers to access that patients in Illinois are facing? Um, I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's, the, it's the conditions that are not covered, right? Um, very legitimate conditions, very similar conditions. Uh, Crohn's, for example, is on the list. Ulcerative colitis is not. Um, That's uh, weird. Conditions like uh, PTSD. Um, 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 you know, we need we need broader access, right? And uh, everyone wants to beat around the bush, uh, but it's 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 really simple. They're afraid that if you make access too broad, too many people will have access, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, that's why chronic pain is not on there. Um, everyone thinks that maybe uh, chronic pain is the the big joke to get people into the medical industry. Um, and you know, there are going to be a few people who take advantage. There are going to be a few people who take advantage of any system you create. Uh, exactly. So I, I don't feel like the entire population of the state of Illinois should suffer because you're scared a couple of 30-somethings might get a card who only kind of need it and who don't really need it. I mean, whoever is the person who gets to make that determination. Um, I think that's <laughs> that's that's one hurdle. I think the, the criminal background check for patients, I think that is a... And fingerprinting huge hurdle that if you wanted to look at it from a certain perspective, you could definitely say that was racist, right? Uh, and that it was designed to affect minorities who have much higher rates of having these sorts of criminal drug felonies. Um, uh, and whether or not it was an intended or unintended consequence of adding that stipulation, um, regardless of if it was intentional or not, again, um, the, the end result is one that discriminates based on race and income. Um, and whether or not that was the intent, that's what we have, right? And, and so that's the more important thing that we have to deal with. Um, I, think, I think these are the barriers. Uh, I think these are the barriers to access. And then, you know, secondarily or, or even a tertiary is, is, is the cost. Um, yes. Um, which, is, which, is, not cheap. which is really difficult, right? Because if we looked at it from a cost perspective, it is much cheaper than pharmaceutical drugs. It is, uh, like you said, a billion dollars to develop right. one, right? You give me a billion dollars to grow pot, you see what I get, right? I, I'll, <laughs> I'll plant half the state, right? Um, um, but, but, but again, it's because it's not subsidized. It's not subsidized by the government. It's not subsidized by insurance. Um, 
Um, and, and I will say this, and, and, you know, a lot of patients are going to give me a little bit of grief over this on, on Facebook, but it's, it's true. I've worked in California in, in 98. I was in, you know, I opened one of the first seven dispensaries in Denver. This is, Illinois, is the cheapest opening medical market right? Um, eights were high-end eights in Denver were $95 year one, right? Whoa. Average ones were 65 or something. And that's an eighth in Denver street value is only $40, right? So Chicago um, street value for an eighth is something like $50, right? Uh, right? There's always some guy who's like, oh, I get it for a hundred. Whatever, man. Like, <laughs> so you got to, you got to, you got to find more right. power to you. Uh, the reality is that it's around 50 bucks. Ask anyone you know who buys off the black market, right? Um, and in dispensaries, it's around 60 bucks. Um, and the cost will go down. Um, th- for year one, this is the cheapest medical market year one that I have seen anywhere. Wow. Um, and, and it's only going to get less expensive. Um, the cultivators in Illinois are on another level. These guys... You know, they're like minimum 80,000 square foot facilities. These guys are all 10 million plus in the game. So um, I I think uh, I think the level of sophistication that's going to come out of cultivation, the level of innovation that's going to come out of the cultivation centers out here um, is going to be something that that the whole country has not seen yet. You can't do that in California where it's still a quasi black market. Um, Denver now, I mean, they're starting to come up with some really large companies, right? Uh, the Dixie's Elixirs, the Denver Reliefs, uh, people who are affiliated with companies here in Illinois now. Um, um, and so I think the level of sophistication is going to only go up. The level of production is going to be on a scale that we've never seen before in the United States, I think, um, just based on the size of the facilities. Um, you grow that kind of scale, costs will come down um, yeah. inevitably, inevitably. But, you know, and it's like I always remind people, we're, we're five, six months into the program now. Um, it's too early, you know. The <laughs> the wholesale cost of medical cannabis right now in Illinois is still uh, very, very high. Um um, and and like I said, I think I think most dispensaries that you know at us at our dispensary and, and other dispensaries they all obviously have their own different philosophies. Um, but everybody is is super conscious of trying to um, minimize the cost for people. Our approach at Dispensary Thirty Three is a little bit different, right? Um, if you want to come in and get a low grade ounce of something for three hundred and twenty five dollars, I'm sorry, I'm not going to have it because I'm actually doing you a disservice, right? Right. Um, I think uh, the highest form of any kind of customer service is to offer the best quality product possible. I can't, I can do no more for you than that, right? Right. And so we sell two products. We sell cannabis and, and we sell patient care. And so those two things we're going to do um, at the highest possible level. Um, we're not going to take any shortcuts. We're, we're, you know, our back of the house, what we do to store medical cannabis, I, I promise you no dispensary does this. Right. You know, um, we we individually vacuum pack everything that comes in. It goes into a humidity temperature controlled vault. Uh, I, I have moisture meters, spot moisture meters. I check them every week. We're, we're um, you, you know, like uh, and, and all if you want me to do all those things, it costs a little bit more. Of course. You know, um, and, and that being said, um it's it's not bad right now, and it's going to get cheaper. So, Renzo, can you tell us a little bit more 
about you know your experience you said there wasn't that much talk about cannabis but you're probably you know back when you're doing your internship but you're probably familiar with president obama's stance on uh, on this issue could you could you enlighten us of course, yeah. So I think uh, one important thing always to talk about is the Cole memo, right? So that is uh, a memo sent out by the DOJ to all the respective attorney generals all across the country um, saying, hey, you know, as long as uh, medical programs are following these rules, uh, they're okay. Don't leave them alone. Don't raid them. Um, and what we're seeing now in Michigan, for example, Michigan did not have a statewide regulated system in place. Um, now they're seeing attention from the DEA, um, right? They're seeing these raids, these no-knock raids. Uh, no knock warrants, just crazy stuff. Um, so the the there's a pros and cons to being a super hot, almost hyper regulated market that Illinois is. Um, so the pros are that hey, you know our our co memo uh, stuff that we're 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 definitely okay with in terms of the uh, when the DOJ looks at us, DEA, ATF. Um, we are definitely okay in the, in the eyes of the federal government because we are so strict. Um, a con of that is that we see issues with patient access. Um, Wait, so, yeah. so you, sorry, I'm just gonna interrupt you. So you're saying that this coal memo, even though it's not a federally legal drug, as long as you abide by these standards, they won't come and raid you? Right. The coal memo didn't really say, hey, cannabis is legal. It, 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 the coal memo just really talks about enforcement and, and really what to look out for, right? And there were things that they were doing already, right? They're looking out for money laundering, things like that. Um, so these are already federal guidelines that, that attorney generals were, were following. But yeah, the coal memo, I think, was, was pretty monumental in terms of the medical cannabis industry, not only here in Illinois, but all across the country. Now, it's interesting, you talk about money laundering. When I was watching, uh, it's called High Profits, actually. I'm you know, trying to stay apprised with all the different you know, cannabis-related documentaries, trying to find out some new things to talk about on our show. And uh, one of the new things I actually want to talk about is nomenclature. And uh, sativa, indica, sativa, and oh, you know geez, that, <laughs> that whole thing. But before we go there, as far as money laundering goes, you know, cannabis sativa is not federally legal. So I know Colorado. I was watching the story on season one of this new dispensary that opened up in Colorado. They were recreational, and they were having issue with banks taking their money because you know it's since it's not since the FDIC insured and it's not federally legal plant they were having trouble like putting this money anywhere because if the banks accepted this money it'd be considered money laundering so richard what can you say about that are they still having that issue today or yeah i mean until until the federal government kind of changes its stance uh, on it um it, it's always going to be federally legal and it, it's and it's because it's i mean banks are FDI insured FDIC insured that's one thing for sure um um, but another is uh, even a state chartered bank, your regulatory body is either going to be the Fed or the FDIC, you know. Um, so under federal regulations, you cannot sell uh, a con an illegal controlled substance. Um, now, I will say that according to this Cole memo, you also told the Cole memo also laid out a pathway for banks to be allowed to accept cannabis money. Um, okay. Um, and so I would say that in Colorado, it is very difficult because their laws are not quite as strict as ours. In Illinois, you know, everyone has a bank. Wow. Okay. It's really interesting. So let's talk about this nomenclature issue. Today I was doing a little research and it said uh, 40 years ago, there was a mistake made. And it said that cannabis sativa should actually be called cannabis indica. And so to apprise our listeners a little bit, this indica sativa system, you know, I'm being told now that it's sort of outdated, but it was an old classification system to kind of describe the cannabis sativa plant. We talked about how diverse it was, but it's, I believe, generally accepted that sativa strains are more uplifting, more energetic. Uh, they're attributed more towards 
you know, motivation, creativity, things of that nature versus indica being a little bit more sedating, more relaxing, better for pain relief, better for anxiety. Uh, but now I'm being told that this is, this is kind of an outdated system. 40 years ago, actually, they said that there was an error made when making this classification and cannabis sativa should actually be called cannabis indica and that cannabis indica should actually be called cannabis afghanica. And there was a third item that... Ruderalis. Ruderalis, exactly, which doesn't have that much therapeutic value. So um, can anyone comment on that? Yeah, we think it's a, it's complete uh, arbitrary nonsense. Okay, exactly. Right. So, so go if, you, if you're going to go by indica sativa, then we can go by tall or short or red or blue. Like, it, it doesn't matter. It's arbitrary. Uh, cannabis indica plants were originally called cannabis indica because they were found on the subcontinent of India. Right. Okay. Um, um, and what some people theorize, and, and I adhere to this theory also, is that, you know, um, for example, when you talk about land races, right? So... You leave a strain in a particular microclimate for long enough, it will develop individual character traits based on its climate, right, on that microclimate, like the French concept of terroir, right, um, and then flavors and things like that. So you talk about people, well, you have fat leaves and you have skinny leaves and you have this and you have that. The, the reality of it is um, those are climate-specific things that happened to the plant, not species-specific. From a botanical standpoint, from a horticultural standpoint, um, in cannabis sativa, cannabis indica means hardly anything. Um, when you want to talk about uplifting versus sedative, you want to talk about the lab profiles. Now, there are certain strains, certain types that tend to provide, you know, high THC, low CBD, high CBN, you know, et cetera, high CBG counts, uh, um, linalool, mercine, the terpenes, right? The terpenes are what really give individual strains their own kind of kind of characters. And terpenes are very well studied, right? They're not a, they exist in all agricultural products. Uh, wow, anything okay. that smells has a terpene in it. Um, you know, and, and, you know, cannabinoids are all terpenoids. Uh, not all terpenoids are cannabinoids, but, but cannabinoids are all terpenoids, you know? And so, um, that's that's the one big problem. You want to know what the plant's going to do? Look at the lab results. There are lots of sativas out there that behave like indicas. There are lots of indicas that behave like sativas. And what do you mean by that? What What is behaving like an indica or behaving like sativa? Is that the characteristics I described earlier? Yeah, exactly. So there are lots of plants, uh, strains out there that people go, well, um, this is a uh, Girl Scout cookie. So this should be an indica heavy hybrid and it should be sedative and this and that. And it won't be. Right, because you all have a high THC strain and a low CBD. I believe Girl Scout cookies sativa. Girl Scout cookie, so Girl Scout cookie is a problem, right? So I should use that as an example. <laughs> it's a problem. Girl Scout cookie is typically an indica. Really? Um, yeah, it is. Oh, uh, the problem is corrected. Girl Scout cookie is a very new strain, and so it's not stable yet. There are many different phenotypes of it out there. Like you'll oh, hear about genetics. Uh, thin mint, right? Uh, platinum. These are all different phenotypes of. Uh, the same Girl Scout cookie. And so you will have def very different aspects because it's the lab results that control that. And a lot of that is manipulated by the grower or can be manipulated, right? You want something sedative. So, okay, if it already has a naturally high linalool and mercine count, great. You're going to get a more body-oriented sedative type strain. But you need to increase the CBN. How do you increase the CBN? You shorten your diet dry times. You turn up the heat, right? You degrade the THC deliberately. Or you lower the heat. You give it incredibly long dry times but nobody does that because that costs money right the longer you sit it in the cure um so you can manipulate the cbn if the cbn is manipulated you have a sedative strain you know um if i have over 10,000 micrograms per gram mercine over 10,000 grams micro uh, micrograms per gram linalool i have 
0.2, you know, 2.3 milligrams per gram CBN. I don't care if that's if that's Durban poison. That is going to be a sedative strain. That's so know? funny that you said that. And I was about to say that it's the parent strain to Girl Scout cookies. So it, Durban poison isn't the parent strain. It's, it's not. It's, a leaf it's leaf might uh, be wrong then. It's it's a cross of Durban that parented uh, Girl Scout cookies. Really? Okay. It was called... Uh, Ah, oh, crud! I can't remember. Hey, Leafly, <laughs> I love you guys, but they're they're not as accurate as people think. They really, are. They're certainly not a place to go get your information from. That's unfortunate. If you that want seems very, to be the gold standard, yeah. If you want very general ideas of what national averages for strains are, sure, Leafly's great. And if you need background information, Leafly's great. So and where you should you connect, go to get the real information? The real information is on the lab result in the shop, right? Because how it was grown. Even in the same plant, those top colas don't test the same as bottom colas, you know? Like, we got to pay extra because we won't take bottom colas. Like, we want all tops or we want the whole lot because that lab result, you know? So there are such things as what I would call a good example. So when I see a Durban poison and it's 20% THC, that's THC converted, decarboxylated, actual potential THC, right? Most places out here, they go by a combined THCA number, which is completely inaccurate. And I, I'm, it's something that bothers me quite a bit. Um, Borderline fraud. Right, right. Uh, so as um, you guys can see, this is a very diverse, um, sophisticated, complex system. So Jen, as a healthcare provider, as someone that probably has to know a, a, you know, a wide variety, a, a very expansive amount of information to treat the diversity of patients, that you know, the diverse range of symptoms and, and patients that you treat, how do you keep it all in check and how do you stay up to date in the information and, and how has it been for you? So... It's simple because I just dial into where the, the client is, where the patient is. So just like um, uh, there's no one diet that works for every one person. There's no one cannabis strain that works for every one person. Everybody is very unique. And so my role is to help my patient understand even where they are and what their needs are because there's so much other static usually around them. Uh, disease usually comes with other traumas and, and certain things like that. So we really just kind of um, dive into where that person is in that moment, who they specifically are. It's a very, very tailored approach. And where one person um, needs like an indica for, for to, to, to really relax, another person may need a very specific sativa. So everyone has very different needs. Um, and the way your body chemistry uh, adapts with the, the medicine is very unique. So so do you encourage your patients to keep logs? Or, Absolutely. Okay, of the different strains they yep. try? Tracking and... is a big part of what we do on everything, whether it's your diet, your poop, <laughs> your cannabis. Like we, There's a tracking that we want to get to know them, themselves, me knowing them, them knowing their own bodies, um, and journaling, tracking, using a calendar to really write out all of the the, um, uh, the information before you go into Medicaid, during medication, and after medicating, uh, okay. just so that you can start to understand the patterns and the needs that your, your specific system, your physiology needs. Okay, great. So all three of you are affiliated with a dispensary. Uh, 
uh, I know that children are, you know, pediatrics. How does that work with the laws? You know, do they have to go, obviously, go to a dispensary with a parent? I mean, how does... No, they can't come in the dispensary. Oh, they're not allowed to come inside. So the Minors parent... have to have a caregiver, mm -hmm. who is usually the parent or legal guardian. Mm -hmm. That is the person who purchases for them. Mm -hmm. And they are not allowed to purchase uh, flour. Wait, really? Yeah. Why? No smokable, no vape, nothing. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. So the child's not allowed to smoke. You what think, if the child is going through chemo? Makes, you think it makes sense, except it's cheaper for those parents to produce their own oil sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I can't show them how to because I'm not allowed to sell them flour. Oh. RSOs and concentrates, we do two programs, right? So we have an RSO program where we do a six-month titration schedule for What's you. RSO? Rick Simpson oil, uh, a sublingual delivery method, right? Um, it, this is primarily very serious people. This is, these are cancer patients. These are um, cancer patients trying to fight the cancer, not deal with the symptoms. Um, right. Um, um, you know, tumors, uh, in some cases, RA and Crohn's and things like that. Um, and it's very expensive. It takes almost an ounce of flour to make a few grams, uh, three or four grams of oil. Um, wow. So these people, if you're a cancer patient, you may need upwards of 1,000 milligrams total cannabinoids per day. Um, a gram? Yeah, per day. Um, and that's quite a bit at a concentrated oil. Um, it's, it's very hard to afford. Um, and because they are barred from purchasing flour, I can't show them how to make it too. Um, now, don't get me wrong, making it yourself has a lot of drawbacks because you can't have it lab tested after. So I have to derive mathematically what the concentration is based on my flour lab reports. But that assumes that you created a perfect extraction right. process, which is probably not happening in your Are house. Are you not able to send in your sample to the lab or do people just a not do that? A patient is not able to do that. That's right. I because you have that. no legal way of transporting it to them. Um, and they're far. They're in Illinois, but they're they're in the deep southern part of Illinois. Most of them, anyway. Um, mm. So that is a, that is a problem with 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 minors. Um, for now, I think that's that's one that'll probably get cleared up. Um, but it's very frustrating for us on the dispensary level to have to deal with somebody who cannot afford the product that you have. Um, and I can't even show you how to make it yourself, which again is not ideal, but it's 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 better than not being able to afford your medicine and trying to stretch your oils. You know, we we create right. a, we create a dosing program. It's very specific. It's how many times a day this is the dose. You know, we check up every week. I get the times. You know, we run blood tests. We we do whatever we got to do. So it's not just smoke a joint when you feel like it. It's very no, regulated. No, I mean, it can be that way. Some people want that. Want right. it that way. You know, but it doesn't have to be that way. And for more serious conditions, especially when you're using RSOs, Rick Simpson oils, there's just so much bad information in the world about how to use sublinguals and tinctures and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't think people really understand it. Uh, people have all kinds of weird ideas about how to do it. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we, we create this program for them. And what we'll see is they'll stretch their dose. They'll be like, hey, I'm not going to use this much. I'm going to use less. And I'm like, it's not how it works, man. It's not going to work like a little. It's going to work or it's not going to work. It's not going to work like kind of because you cut the dose in half. Right. Um, but I, but I understand, right? You're, you're in this financial, you're in this financial bind, um, um, and I, and I wish I could just tell them to, to make their own, you know. So, Jen, do you treat any patients that aren't registered um, cannabis mm -hmm. patients? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, 
there's plenty of my patients who have been dealing with their chronic ailments and self-medicating from the black market even before I started working with the dispensary. It's one of the reasons that when this opportunity came for me to work with the dispensary, I kind of jumped on it so that I could learn even more about the power of this modality. It's um, So, yeah, we've, in fact, I wouldn't say 100% of my patients use it, but uh, a, a good portion of them do, sure. You know, a lot of physicians find that, too, when they survey their patients. A yeah. lot of them are already using cannabis, especially AIDS patients, especially mm-hmm. fibro patients, um, especially cancer patients. And one of my roles with my patients is to help empower them so that they know how to speak to their physician, so they know how to uh, have this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, we have... Um, kind of put doctors on a a pedestal in a place where we can't tell them everything about, you know, you go and you withhold a lot of information and that doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the physician (laughs) doing their job. It doesn't help the patient who is in pain. Um, So having this fear of being able to say something to the physician that this is how I make it through my day is um, it takes some coaching as well. And along with the extra information that you, that we find together, you know, after we are tracking their, their food intake and realizing very specific pains, instead of just saying, you know, doc, my stomach's hurting. Now we can get in a little bit deeper and say, well, it's hurting after I've just eaten, um, wheat. I find that wheat is really making my stomach, uh, bloat up and feel bad or whatever that connection is, but it's giving the, the patient more information and more power when they are speaking with their physician and and helping them find uh, just deeper healing in that that aspect. That's really great. Thank you so much, Jen. So, Renzo, I want to kind of go around and ask everybody, start with you. What direct changes do you want to see happen immediate, you know, in the immediate future in this medical cannabis program? And how can we, you know, step, you know, give, give people... If you wanted to give our listeners a message, how can our listeners everywhere from the politicians listening to this to the everyday patient to someone who cannabis maybe doesn't even affect their life, you know, how can we work together as a community to make this more accessible, to make this program flourish and to give people the access they need and deserve? Yeah, I think from a from a, a legislative perspective, uh, the, the program needs to expand uh, for, for, for this as... Um, as an industry for, to, for it to survive, uh, we need more patients. Uh, we need more doctors being okay with signing a recommendation. Um, we need more education with physicians. We need more education with patients um, on how to apply. Uh, we need we need expanded access. We don't have an application that is in Spanish. We don't have an application that is in Chinese, that is in uh, Korean, Indian, uh, anything uh, other than English. So that is, uh, I'm not going to say it was a deliberate move, but that definitely uh, will not help uh, patients get relief, uh, especially those that do not speak English. Um, so these are all issues. Uh, in addition to adding, you know, more more of the conditions, um, you know, th- those have been those will be sent if they haven't already. I can't remember if they have, but um, you know, it was the same same conditions that were. Uh, uh, submitted last time plus i think one or two um but yeah at the end of the day it's and it's there needs to be the political will for, for this program to expand and for patients to continue getting the getting the relief that they really need um but yeah outside of that i think we need more education especially with with, with communities that do not have access to traditional healthcare options in general um we, we need this type of of, of of help for them because yeah they're, they're the most needy of, of communities and um unfortunately for 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 products like this whether it's this or just um opportunities in general yeah we, we need our, our community 
communities of color to to have the same access as as their counterparts in, in other communities. That's really great, Jen. What would you say you know, to answer that same question? What do you want to see change? How can we make that change happen? And you know, what message do you want to do you want to send out to all our listeners? Well, I definitely want to. Um uh, just uh, say ditto to having the the applications open to more uh, people, the conditions being more expanded to to be more inclusive of others that are are really dealing with some some pretty heavy uh, pains and and health issues. Um, just more in a, a, a front of the dispensaries and the growers. I would I mean on my wish list would be that the patients are allowed to purchase a plant to grow so Definitely. that they can do it on their own and be able to purchase trim at the very least so that they can juice this plant along with uh, making their own edibles. Did you say juice? Juice, yeah, for sure. You can juice um, just as, as if you would juice your wheatgrass or your kale. In fact, that's, I mean, you're not going to get the, the um, a high from it the way you would if you're um, uh, taking a plant that has THC, but you're still able to get uh, the cannabinoids and and the macro and micronutrients that are part of the plant itself. It's really I would cool. argue that you're getting them in their acidic form, though, right? You're getting THCA, you're getting CBDA. Mm -hmm, right. Okay. Those are with their carboxyl acid groups still attached. They're they're different, and we're starting to see a lot of research coming out about the benefits of, of those right. in, in their own right. Um, but yeah, they, they are they are different than what's in the dry plant. And to be able to include that with your dry plant therapy as well is again just more of a, um, uh, a an overall plant experience, which is um, in a holistic field. That is what that means. All you know, using it everything that you can. That's great. Yeah, and the whole idea of whole plant extract comes from the holistic field. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a and it's in diametric opposition to the pharmacological model. Mm -hmm. It is right? so. Or the pharmaceutical model, sorry. I mean, the message that I would leave is the dialogue. Just dialogue. Have this conversation with the, your your physician, with the guy at the water cooler, with your aunt uh, who has arthritis. Like, the more we as a society speak about this um, and help to take the stigma down, the more opportunities people will have to be able to to uh, use this therapy for themselves and for their own ailments. Sure. I definitely share this podcast. Yeah, share this podcast. <laughs> so, Richard, you know the the spotlight's on you now. What would you want to What you want to say? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I we get asked this question a lot, and, and obviously, legislatively and product wise, and I, I have a million things I I'm, I'm going to change someday. Um, but it feels like a lot of the time we're trying to talk to middle of the road people, right? Like people who are unsure, like, hey, is this really medicine? Is this not medicine? Uh, whether we're talking to physicians, whether we're talking to the general public. But, you know, so I'm sitting here thinking about what you're talking about. And I'm like, you know what? The general public overwhelmingly supports this. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Patients overwhelmingly support this. And so the problem is government. The problem is um, politicians, by their nature, are not on the cutting edge, right? They're behind. They're waiting for the world to come and tell them what 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 they want done. Um, and you know, the thing that I, we're always saying is is everyone's spoken, man. In in the is the world better with cannabis illegal or is the world better with cannabis legal? At least to some degree. Um, who thinks the world is a 
better place, right? Like with cannabis being illegal. You want to run that experiment? We've done it since 1977. Nixon started it. And here we go. The world, the last 40 years, was it better than the 40 years previous? The great generation in World War II? No, it wasn't, man. We have the highest incarceration rates. We have... You know, an unbelievable illicit black market economy. We have states who are struggling financially. So you guys had your chance and you were wrong, right? The, right. the, the architects of the drug war, like it's time to admit that you were wrong. And politicians, it's time to get on board with something like 72% of the American public, right? Uh, they want cannabis legal, at least in some regard, and and regulated. Nobody's saying, you know... Let's open up the wild, wild west, you know. We've tried that, too. It was called prohibition. That was not a very good experiment <laughs> either. Uh, so now let's let's take rational policy approaches that make sense. And instead of worrying about what is politically palatable, because I'm telling you, Mr. Governor and everyone else involved, it's all politically palatable now. Um, let's make policy that, that works, like, on a practical level, right? And I would be super impressed if that happens, because governments are just not that great at that. Um, <laughs> most, so. most definitely. Thank you, Richard. That's very insightful. You know, I wonder where the discrepancy really lies, and I think it does have to do with the 70s, and is that, is that what it was, Richard Nixon? Yeah, Richard Nixon, the Controlled Substance Act, 1977. We were almost called Dispensary 77. Right? <laughs> 1933, incidentally, was the year the Volstead Act was repealed, which was uh, the prohibition of alcohol. Interesting. So, you know, I wonder what people think about other drugs, you know, like, let's take your Norco, let's take your morphine, yeah. let's take your Dilaudid, let's oh. take your Oxycontin. All these drugs are derivatives of the poppy plant. Yep. By the way, the poppy plant can be smoked. It is all around the world. Yeah, they Even, call it opium. Exactly. <laughs> Even here in America. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this plant. I'm wondering where the discrepancy lies between the poppy plant and the marijuana plant. And something, a difference I see is the poppy plant's way more addictive. You know, the drugs synthesized from morphine, you know, from opioid derivatives, such as the drugs I just listed, are way more accessible, way more addicting. And how about this for a statistic? More affordable, too. Exactly, more affordable because the insurance covers it. I can't remember the exact statistic, and I wish I did right now. But it was some, like, extremely high percentage of people, once OxyContin change their pills from the very easily crushable, injectable, snortable little blue pills that every you know everyone that, that either in the illicit market or that prescribed it knew of them. Once they took away the capacity for them to be crushed, like a huge percentage of the market like dropped. Their sales dropped. Once they had were forced to make the pills that now they have a safety mechanism on it to where if you try to crush it it instantly gels up. Or if you crush it and add water it turns into a gel. So you can't snort it and you can't shoot it. A large percentage of their sales went down after doing that. So what does that mean? It means a large percentage of their people were abusing the pills. They're not meant to be crushed. It tells you on the bottle, you know? So that's that's something that's something, you know, to take note of. And if this is already happening with opioid narcotics, that's causing an unprecedented amount of overdoses, deaths, crime. The black market for opioid drugs is unbelievable. It almost always ends in with heroin, you know? Then what's the issue? What's the issue with cannabis? I don't understand the difference. You know, if anything, it seems the side effect profile is much smaller. Um, when you overdose on opioids, the physiological effect is respiratory depression, you know, CNS depression, which means you stop breathing and you die. Till today, there is not one purported overdose on marijuana because 
overstimulation of the cannabinoid receptors does not lead to any fatal symptomology. That's yep. why no one dies. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, what is the hesitation? Also, there's no, no receptors in your brainstem. No. Ah, that's right. No. In the medulla, there are no receptors there. That's correct. And we know how ridiculous it is, right? In 1980, I know this quote because I use this quote a lot. Ronald Reagan said, the single greatest threat to America is marijuana. How hyperbolically ridiculous is that statement if we look at it in today's context, right? right. Um, um, I'm like, you know, everyone's seen Reefer Madness. Like they used to literally tell people you will go psychotic and murder and rape if you smoke marijuana. Um, geez, you know, like that's not based in science. That's not based in policy. That's not based in sound policy at any rate. Um, it was a target that we had to pick. And now I'm not going to go into the reasons why Nixon chose marijuana. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories that abound out there in the world that Hemp I don't want to. the paper industry. <laughs> right, right, right. Or, you know, that it was a it was a move, you know, de de designed to harm black people um, in particular. And whether or not that's that's true, my, my just my general stance on conspiracy theories is, is that I just I'm not going to address those things until, <laughs> right. some, until some real evidence actually emerges. Um but I think we're, we're we're in a political quagmire, and I and I think people are trying, politicians are trying to back their way out in a way that helps them save face. And so, as an industry, I'm all like, hey, let's let them save face. Like we're not trying to hold anyone's feet to the fire, man. Like, uh, just correct the mistakes, right? Governments and bureaucracies they measure time differently than you or I. It's not minutes and hours; it's decades and years, you know. Um, so the fact that we've made any progress at all, I think, is, is, is a good sign. Um, and I, I have yet to see any state put the genie back in the bottle. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's an inevitable, it's, it's inevitable what's going to happen. What, what, what's going to end up happening is, is inevitable. And our grandchildren are going to look back and think we're as silly as, as, <laughs> as the prohibitionists of the 1920s. Um, Most definitely. And I legitimately believe that. The world becomes more liberal. The world becomes more, you know, uh, you know, and this is, I just mean statistically, right? Like you move, the population moves into large urban centers more and more every mm -hmm. year. Um, you, when you move into a large urban center, your values change because you are forced to interact with people you would not otherwise. Uh, tendencies become more tolerant, right? And so politicals, political ideology shifts left, you know, Um and I'm not saying that that's necessarily the answer, uh, but but that's the trend that we're seeing. So to me, this is all this is all uh, inevitable, inevitable. What I don't want to happen is what what usually happens, where uh, government designs a program uh, and it doesn't work because what does the government know about it? You know, right? Um, um, but that's what pilot programs are for, right? So mm -hmm. that they can learn and that they can have industry people come back and tell them, hey. This and this and that and then, you know. So one of the things we like to talk about, thank you, Rich. One of the things we like to talk about on biotics is the other side, right? The opposition. I know one of the big arguments, there's a, there's a few, um, and I think they've all been refuted very well personally, but one of the arguments is definitely the studies that show that marijuana can be dangerous to the developing brain. You know, it can be dangerous for people under the age of 16. However, we've also noted that a lot of our patients are pediatric patients. Uh, as I talked about with Feliza, and I just, you know, recently watched Sanjay Gupta's documentary, Weed Again, there was that little girl who was suffering from uh, Darve? Dravet Dra syndrome. Dravet Charlotte, syndrome. Dravet. Charlotte Figgies. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Mr. Encyclopedia. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, she was having 300 seizures a week. 
And after trying everything, I mean, they were putting Valium and stuff up her nose. You know, that wasn't working. After trying everything for this poor little girl, they gave her cannabis, and she went down to onesie sure week. So obviously, there are pros and cons to treating pediatric patients. I want to know, Jen, what's your experience in treating your pediatric patients, and how do you weigh that risk? Well, currently, I don't have, um, as, a, as a coach, I'm not, uh, I, I work with caregivers to the, uh, the okay. pediatrics. Right. So I work with mothers um, with her fibromyalgia, and as she uh, also has children on the autism mm-hmm. spectrum, I can help them in regards to... Um, uh, nutritional uh, advice, um, uh, but I, I'd like to the studies that show things like um, in reality we don't have enough studies on what right. it does to the pediatric brain. Uh, any studies that have been done uh, previously have been on why marijuana has been bad um, and not focused on the benefits of what cannabis has has done uh, up until you know Mishulam obviously and recently. So uh, I, you know, I would think that um, there just needs to be way more studies in that regard um, to 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 verify that. Definitely, yeah. and as a scientist, I think that's that's you know, any any medical journal you read, the last sentence is always almost calling for more research. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. that's that's kind of etiquette. I think that's humility. I think it's understanding that we don't have. We, we never have the body of literature we want or we need. We're always in pursuit, which is what makes science so beautiful. But as far as cannabis, we're particularly behind. You know, we're particularly behind in this research. Um, Israel, we talked about earlier, is being a, a, you know, a country that's very progressive in their, in their cannabis research. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, Renzo, would, would you like to talk a little bit about like maybe foreign policy? Do you have any, do you have any expertise in, in foreign policy and how cannabis is maybe viewed in the rest of the world? Yeah, Israel definitely has um, has been for the, in, on the forefront uh, in terms of medical cannabis research for a while. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, a commitment on, uh, on, on on the behalf of the Israeli government to really research this and to really um, pour funds into this research and to do really uh, real science or scientifically backed research. Um, yeah, it, it's been great, but yeah, Israel definitely um, in terms of the Middle East, even across the world, has has led the has led the way. Uh, we're seeing Amsterdam, we're seeing California, um, but yeah, in terms of uh, you, you talk about child patients earlier. Um, so us at Dispensary Thirty Three, actually, we have a couple uh, child yeah, patients. Yeah, we, we have we have several pediatric patients, and you know, a couple of things that the study that um, that uh, that you're talking about that's pretty widely that's pretty widely cited these days. Right. If I'm correct, that was just a statistical analysis, right? Like it wasn't even a they they, didn't, they hadn't even gotten to cohort studies with with that just yet. No, of course not. Yeah, and so uh, the the information is is a little bit you know um, I, I don't want to say it's 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 bad information. I haven't fully read that one, um, but but I will say that. What I did read of that paper, the detrimental effects to adolescent brains didn't seem that severe to me um, in relation to the conditions that these kids are dealing with, right? So if you're if you have a pediatric patient and they're in there for, you know, I mean, man, if Tourette's. they're there, it yeah. is very serious, right. you know. Um, we have a couple. One is, you know, I can talk briefly about him. He is a, a four-year-old. Glioblastoma began somewhere oh. around the 85 millimeter range. 
So a large tumor. Um, it's brain has, cancer. Yeah, has had surgery one time. Parents opted out of both chemo and radiation. We put him on one of our RSO programs. He's our greatest success story to date, probably. I have about 30 patients on, on RSO programs with very regimented titration schedules and dosing. So about month three into the program for him, the tumor stopped growing. Um, he went about 40 days with no seizure, which is the longest that he's ever gone his entire life. I just got an email from his doctor today. Uh, the tumor is shrinking. So we are at 66 millimeters now today. Um, ah, that's amazing. So, um, yeah, compared to what he's going through, what kind of developmental stuff are you worried about hmm. like you're worried his short-term memory is going to be impacted because i'm kind of worried he's not going to live you know <laughs> um so it's 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 ludicrous nobody is saying hey my my son's nauseous let's light up a joint for him you know what i mean like that's that's I, that, it's 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 a logical fallacy right it's i forget which one it is it's the one where you take it to its ultimate extreme like two-year-old smoking yeah. blunts on the bus or something like that <laughs> right um it's never going to happen. No no responsible dispensary would do that, you know. Um, no responsible parent would right. do that. You know, most kids don't even want to smoke blunts at two years old, as I understand <laughs> it. Um, so I think it's a ludicrous argument. You know, I, I, I think that, yeah, there might be some long-term... Uh, detriment. We know that there's there's problems with uh, short-term memory, temporary short-term memory loss. We know there's problems with chronic bronchitis if you're a smoker. I'm not saying there there are no no drawbacks, but if the drawback is um, seriously impacting someone's quality of life, or or perhaps in you know them choosing between living or dying. Um, you know, and in, and in the case of Charlotte, like her developmental impairment was profound. Oh, you know, yeah. she had a twin sister who was developing, you know, at twice the rate. She was borderline, uh, like, like mentally uh, disabled. Oh, they were know? afraid she wasn't going to make it. Yeah, they were going to induce she coma. She wouldn't know? have. It so, wasn't her can. I mean, the, the 300 right. seizures, she was seizing almost once an hour. Right. So in, in, in comparison to that, I don't know what kind of developmental problems you're talking about that are not. Exactly. I mean, we prescribe all kinds of drugs with way, way worse side effects than that, you know. Shannon, uh, what, what, is, what is your opinion on, on using pediatrics? I'm all for it because it, you're giving a mother an opportunity to use something natural versus the uh, pharmaceutical prescriptions that are overflowing out of their kitchen cabinets and their medicine cabinets and all over the counters. I mean, um, when you are in that level where you're you're having seizures all the time and all the pharmaceuticals and opiates that come with that and muscle spasm relaxers, all these things, um, to be able to to have one natural medicine that you can just try, right? That's what this program is, is allowing that uh, mother to have another option than what she's been given to, to treat her child. You know, one of the things I was going to say, we can kind of go back to the yeah, opiate. Um, yes. Uh, obviously, we've got a huge uh, epidemic of uh, opiate problem in, in America that's been highlighted by the president recently. Um, probably everyone in this room has someone that they know who has had um, uh, pretty dramatic uh, experiences with pharmaceuticals and, op and opiates. We have uh, quite a few patients that come in who are um, going through uh, um, withdrawal, right? And right. they are using this medicine to be able to make it through that uh, opiate withdrawal because it helps with all of those things that your body uh, 
does when when you are uh, removing this medicine from your your system. So the nausea, the sweats, the chills, the chills, the pain, the anxiety, all these things that come with it. Here we have this natural option that is um, being able to uh, help them bridge that gap from where they are to where they want to be. And it's it's incredible. The best way I've heard opiate withdrawal described is at first you're afraid you're going to die and then you're afraid you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. The recovery rate, I've, I believe, from IV heroin is something like 1%, something very sad. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've noticed that in states that have legalized marijuana, the amount of use of opioids has gone down. The amount of crime has gone down. And that's really remarkable because the withdrawal symptoms from cannabis are, I would almost say, barely noticeable. You yeah, know? it's like being cranky and maybe you have a <laughs> headache or something. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, and I've, I've seen this happen to guys, uh, you know, try to walk into a drug rehab and be like, I'm here for cannabis. See what see what everyone else says to you. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, um, so. <laughs> so being part of dispensaries, what is that? You probably have a lot of experience with patients trying to get off painkillers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the number one... I would say it's the number two secondary condition, right? So number one is usually fibro, MS, cancer. Um, those are the tops. And then um, C- CRPS. Uh, and then secondarily, it's anxiety, depression, and coming off of opiates. Th- these are the other things that people want to want to address. Um, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. When I hear the amounts of opioids that some people are on, it is... Uh, it's pretty astonishing. Um, um, myself not being a, a, a chronic pain patient, I, I, I did not, I did not realize people were being prescribed this amount of these kinds of drugs uh, uh, in in concert with each other too. In some cases, um, and and some powerful antipsychotics sometimes, and 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 yeah. so it's 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 difficult. What we find with people who are looking for opioid reduction, um, the fewer opioids we use, the fewer the less cannabis you need also, right? So you have to start very high, but as you wean yourself off of one, the amount that you need of the other also reduces. Um, and so it does take it does take a long time. And not everyone's goal is to completely wean themselves off, right? But it's, it's, it's usually in an effort to gain some aspect of functionality back um, um, where they can function. So there's at least a reduction. Um, I would say it is overall, I mean, it's like cannabis is maybe greatest aspect right now because you don't have to be accurate like i don't have to give you a crazy detailed schedule right you can do it kind of as needed and most people that we talk to they're pulling themselves off of opiates they're not doing it with our help or with Mm -hmm. the help of a physician they're they're doing it on their own um which was startling to me right because i seen you know, I, I seen what opioid addiction can do, right? Like even when you're talking about heroin or, or, or prescriptions, it's it's so brutal that I, I used to write people off when they fall down that path, right? Because there ain't no coming back from it, um, in my experience, in my personal experiences. So um, maybe 2007, 2006... Maybe it was a little bit earlier than that. My, my perspective on medical cannabis changed quite a bit, which is why I go back into that story. I was in the camp of, oh, yeah, you know, quote, unquote, glaucoma, cool, you know. Um, and it wasn't until I got in touch with a few physicians who were, who were helping me out and, and working, who had extensively worked with cannabis. Um, and I started doing the reading and doing a little bit of research myself and, 
and all this kind of stuff that my opinion on medical cannabis really greatly shifted. And one of the things that did that was watching people wean themselves off of opiates. It was always my impression that in order to come off of opiates, like somebody has to strap you into a chair, you know, like I didn't think I didn't think you could do it on your own. Right. I, I, th I thought you at least you need you need my help. You need a physician's help. You need somebody's help to come down off of those. Um, and people are doing it themselves with very little direction. Like right. like the direction that they get is, man, this one's good for nausea. <laughs> cool. You know, and then. Yeah. And then they're taking themselves off of opiates. And that's eight, nine years ago, ten years ago I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Now it's so much more sophisticated than that. It's it's actually something that we see, like, again, my whole point is just that I, I see patients doing it on their own, mm -hmm. figuring out that they can just wean themselves off. And it was really impressive to me because, I, you know, I've, I've just seen the brutality of, of opioid addiction. You know, and it's like, I'm here today and it's like now, I mean, the fight's so strong in me, you know. It's like it's not fair. It's not right that... Drug addiction, bipolar, you know, PTSD, all these neurological disorders, you know, that they're not that they're not qualifying conditions. Yeah, because there's great, great potential with the neurological stuff. We see it with the Parkinson's studies. We see it with the ALS studies. We see it with the autism studies. Like, man, the neurological stuff, I think, is really, really some of the most exciting, most like... I, I think it's it's one of the greatest potentials of cannabis that we are not exploring on a medicinal level because because a physician is no longer quite as necessary if we're talking about it. Now we got to talk to a therapist and psychologists and psychiatrists and, 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 and people like that. And we as a country, we have such a brutally hard time talking about mental health at all. It's so um, true um, that it just never comes up in the debate and it should. You know, most definitely. Jen, when we expand are qualifying conditions. What kind of patients do you expect to see trickle in? Are you looking forward to dealing with more mental health patients? Absolutely. And I think PTSD is um, a big one. Uh, that uh, it, We think of PTSD certainly uh, with soldiers at war, but there is um, trauma-induced PTSD that is a big one as well that we, we see whether or not it's their qualifying condition. Obviously, it's not their qualifying condition yet, um, but we see a lot of that coming through the dispensary already and the transformations that this medicine has been able to help with um, have been really remarkable. So I, I expect that that will be uh, one of the, the, the big, big ones that come through. And I hope so, because um, I have a background in trauma counseling, and that's, that is, you know, it's so tied in and so woven into the fabric of who we are. Um, that it affects everything in, in our systems, our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, you name it. So I think that's a big one that will come through. Yeah, and I think we have a huge minority population in Chicago that has PTSD. Yeah. I think the whole South Side has PTSD. I think I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think all the K-Town has, has, has PTSD. I think, I think back in the yards. I think if you grew up in that neighborhood, you got PTSD. I think if you grew up in Uptown, you, you got PTSD. Because I don't know anybody who grew up in my neighborhood who didn't see someone get killed before we were 10. Not wow. one, you know? I don't know anybody in my neighborhood who, whose brother or cousin or somebody didn't get killed or go to prison or, or something like that. Um, and and I think, I think, I think that's a, it's one of the reasons that politicians are scared to add PTSD. I think they know a lot of urban youth will qualify. Um, Doesn't the U.S. federal government have a patent on cannabis as a neuroprotectant? That's true. Yes. It does. Yes, yeah, it as does. a neuroprotectant. Yes. But it doesn't, it doesn't apply the way most people think it does, right? So it, a lot, it's largely seen as a way to uh, actually block pharmaceutical companies from trying to patent it. 
Um, um, so yeah, there's no actual device. There's no actual mechanism. Um, it's so they just secured know. the patent. Is nothing with it. Yeah, exactly. that's so unfortunate. Cause that's exactly. a huge finding. It's yeah. a huge. It's a huge benefit. You know, we talk about. It's funny because people say sometimes, "Oh, smoking pot makes you dumber." Well, it's funny because the research actually says that it protects your brain and it actually grow like regenerates brain cells, which is phenomenal, remarkable. Nothing does that. Yeah, nothing does that. <laughs> like regenerating brain cells. Like when I heard that, I was like, "Oh man, that's that's the old joke. Everyone you lose, you're not getting that back, right?" Like so. I can say anecdotally. Uh, being raised on the Northwest side, I actually went to a high school that did drug testing. Uh, we were one of the first schools uh, in the country to do any type of mandatory drug testing. It was random. Um, but being at that school, we drank a lot. We drank a lot. Uh, and, you know, I noticed that my grades were terrible in high school. Um, flash forward to college, uh, I was only smoking weed, not drinking whatsoever. Uh, and my grades were, were through the roof. I was, you know, dean's list, uh, honors that, uh, you know, yeah, it was it was definitely an eye-opening experience to be in college and have the, the autonomy to do what I wanted with my body and uh, with the things that I was putting in my body, uh, including what I decided to kind of unwind with. And, yeah, when I made the jump to cannabis, um yeah, it was. It was my, my 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 grades were better. My 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 social life was better. Yeah, everything was just a general general overall net gain on my life. It's crazy how many people self medicate with it. You know, it's like they don't even realize they're doing it, and that's what's that's what's wild about it. You know, Colorado has seen so many. Washington has seen so many benefits. I mean, I remember watching this again, High Profits, and that dispensary that opened. It was on Main Street. I don't know if you've seen the show. Main Street. It was in Colorado on Main. It was. It was. A, but it's not like Denver though. It oh, was like right, a right. suburb of Colorado, right, right, right? right? So they were having a lot of like ethical qualms. It was like a small town. Sure. Like, oh, it's we don't want the. Yeah, Breckenridge. Exactly, Breckenridge. And they didn't want like the influx that. And it's true. Like you cannot avoid the fact that when you bring especially recreational marijuana into your town, everything is going to change. There's no way to avoid that, you know? But, like, you have to take the good with the bad because the good is so good. Like, that dispensary made a hundred grand in two days. The taxes they made, the town got so wealthy. They had too much money. And that's that's Breckenridge, which is a huge ski resort town anyway. Um, Not quite on the level of Aspen and Vail. But you know what? These guys, they're they're bringing an extra income because all of a sudden, you know, in Colorado, it usually snows. You can ski until April, beginning of May. Uh, These ski seasons are getting shorter. Um, The snow is not lasting. These people are losing lots of money. And medical cannabis or recreational cannabis is just shoring up that income. It's coming. They're making it back, you know. How hard is it to create new tax revenue? How hard is that? It's impossible. All you can do is raise taxes or, you know, try to tax something new that everyone's going to hate. But when you tax cannabis, everyone from the patient to the grower is like, yeah, tax us. You know, all we want to do is pay taxes. Uh, uh, new revenue stream. It's just impossible to find. We're, we're not going to have too many more of these things, you know. Um, that's so true. Yeah. And that's that, an important topic for a state that is trying to figure out a budget right yep, now. Yep. So. Which is most states. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah most states don't just take, you know, 19 months or, or whatever right, to figure right, it exactly. out. Yeah. Uh, oh, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the things that I would like to speak about that I heard about in, you know, Sanjay Gupta's documentary and that's come up quite often is like the 
transformation of the culture of, of marijuana and cannabis. You know, when you think of cannabis, I mean, just look around the studio right now. Look around at just, you know, the ambiance and the art. And think about art. Think about music. You know, think about now it's spilled into medicine. You know, but before it was lo really looked at as something medical. It was, first of all, already obviously self-medicating a lot of people. But, like, it's been touted by a lot of musicians and artists as something that's fueled their creativity as something that's fueled their inspiration as something that's integral to them as an artist i mean i think all of us here are artists in our own way you know i mean what, what do all of you have to say about cannabis as a tool that goes beyond the body and more as like a medicine for the soul well cannabis is um it lowers the resistance right whether we're talking about muscular um, anxiety, it lowers resistance. So if you are already an, an artist, a creative, lowering that resistance takes you into higher levels of what your craft is. So when you're talking about a patient just lowering their resistance to the focus of the pain that they have going on, um, and that brings them into a more uh, higher state of homeostasis. So I, I love that this plant is so... Um, Gosh, there's just so much depth to what it is able to do and the layers. I mean, we, we have a very micro view of the things that it is accomplishing, where it's pain relieving, um, helping with nausea and such. But the micro view of what this plant can do has yet to really be fully understood or documented or really uh, studied because it's, it's so powerful on such a micro level even you know, with my patients, I often use um, their medicating moments to encourage their meditations or their quiet time or their self-care because it's it's uh, offers that lowering of the resistance so that they're able to get a little bit deeper and a little bit more thorough in what that... that so how do you combat the common, you know, downside that people claim with marijuana? How do you combat the laziness how do you combat the sinking into your couch and doing nothing how do you combat the eating cheetos and you know watching pulp fiction like three times in a row combat people's thought of it or combat the actual action of it why don't you comment on both I i'm mean, sure you're attacking them in two different ways right certainly this this medicine has come with um a lot of stigma to it you know the stoner stigma the hippie stigma the you know you're lazy or whatever but that's just um it's inaccurate it's uh, the way I combat that with people who want to, to have that dialogue is just um, do a little bit more research on it, uh, sh showing them the more medical side of what this, this plant is. Um, as far as with a patient, we just combat it on, is that what you want? Do you want to sit and be lazy? Because there is value in that. If you want, to sit, if you want something very sedative, there is value in that. If that's not what you want, well, then we'll just dial it into a different frequency by, go, you know, taking you over to this strain instead and trying this or this type of medicating instead of uh, smoking. We have different uh, avenues that you can do it. The phenomenon of couch lock is generally, as it's referred to right. in the industry, is a byproduct of CBN, cannabinol. Really? Right? So cannabinol is the primary sedative component of cannabis. It is far more sedative than both linalool and myrcene, which are typically present in what, you know, indica, quote-unquote, strains. So if you want to avoid couch lock, um, you need strains that have very little uh, CBN to no CBN. CBN is powerful in very small amounts. So you're looking at a strain that has THC, 
a little bit of CBD, let's say, and then you have zero CBN, um, one of the things that can happen is another phenomenon called uh, sativa crash, right? Sativa crash is when you smoke a really high potency strain that has no CBD and no CBN. Um, the euphoria is uplifting, but the coming down is incredibly sedative for, for a lot of people. Oh, so um, you're energetic at first, but mm -hmm. then you get really sleepy? Right. So the way to combat that is CBD in small amounts uh, acts as an agonist at CB1 receptor sites with THC. So if you have small amounts of CBD mixed with large amounts of THC, um, CBD in those cases has been proven to increase things like attention. Um, right. And so it's a little bit more uplifting. So the ideal profile, you know, oh, I did air quotes there. I forgot we were on. Podcast. Um, <laughs> the, the ideal ratio there is usually something like 23, 24 percent THC. That's incredibly high. It's very high. A little bit under right around 0.5 percent CBD, 0.4 percent CBD or something like that. So which is around four milligrams per gram um, and zero CBN. This is your classic THC, or I'm sorry, sativa type strain that's going to be uplifting and energetic. Then there's a couple of terpenes that we need to look at. I want to see limonene, right? The, the, it accounts for the, the citrus smell. Also very uplifting and works in tandem with the THC. So that's what I would call an uplifting strain. And we would do the opposite for a sedative strain if you wanted the couch lock. I'm looking for higher levels of CBD, which tend to give you, you know, more. So like a classic indica, again, with the air quotes. Um, you're going to see something like 20-some percent THC, maybe 1.1.0 to 2% uh, CBD, uh, 0.14 to 0.2% CBN, and you're going to have something like 10,000 micro, maybe 8,000 micrograms per gram myrcene, uh, and then around 8 to 12,000 12, micrograms per gram linalool. That varies quite a bit. I've seen those numbers as high as 20,000, right? Uh, the higher that number is, the more sedative I know it's going to be. And, and th that's how we would address that. Don't you love science? I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm absolutely thrilled with, uh, with uh, you know, me. me no, see. we're big dorks, man. I'm going to send you a shirt. We've made a big shirt. You know, we've got glasses on it. It's a, it's a, it's just a hexagon. It says cannabis nerd. We're trademarking that. We're trademarking that. As soon as the federal <laughs> government allows me to do a federal trademark of a... Oh, no, I can trademark that. That's right. I just can't patent anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I, I wear it proudly. Can of a proud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll send you. Oh, man, that's the can of a proud. How did we not? So. <laughs> We're trademarking that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners, could you, you know, could all of you maybe comment on or maybe list off a couple of strains you like, a couple of strains you know that are very good for, you know, just, just give yeah. people a little something to work off of. Like, give them some names. I know yeah. it depends so on the strains. The so. most popular strain in Illinois, according to Leafly, right? We just had dinner with them a few weeks ago. You had uh, dinner with Leafly? Yeah, 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 we're good buddies with them. So that little bit I did about Leafly before, you know, just for your audience, I love Leafly. I think Leafly's good. They're just, you know, it's very general information is my point. Um, Gorilla Glue 4 is the most mm. popular strain in Illinois right now. It's, it's one of our favorites also. Um, we think it's great. It's very White Widow reminiscent. 4 is a different kind of phenotype. A lot of people are familiar with Gorilla Glue. That may be known as a little bit more of a heavy sedative. Not necessarily right. sedative, but heavy strain. Right. right? Uh, the big, what's the rumor on the, the street that everyone says? Because uh, you're glued to your couch, um, that sort of thing. I would say the four pheno is different. It's definitely a little bit more on the energetic side, super reminiscent of White Widow in its aroma, um, and it's and it's kind of 
you know, Gorilla Glues and White Widows and those kinds of strains, they have um, those kinds of sativas tend to have a very soapy kind of flavor we describe it as. Um, soapy. Yeah. A little bit of a soapy kind of... Uh, Generally, you're gonna, you know, what are you going to have? You're going to, your indicas, uh, again, I don't even like using the word, um, <laughs> are generally like this dense berry fruit kind of smell. Sometimes they're earthy, like OGs. Sometimes they're piney, again, like OGs. Um, uh, your super sativas are, are often going to be uh, citrusy. Um, they're often going to be, um, um, they're going to have like a... A bit of like a fresh grass cut smell to them a little bit. Um, and the best ones, in my opinion, my favorite ones, have this slightly soapy aroma to them. Right. So Gorilla Glue 4 is probably the most popular in the state. My favorite in the lineup right now is... I'm, I'm not usually a huge fan of heavy sedative strains, um, but... We just tried to let an, I I just saw a sample of an Iranian land race um, that looks amazing. Looks amazing. Super purple, super dense. Definitely going to be sedative. Um, and then derivative products. Derivative products are, are, are kind of exciting because they're 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 what's new. Um, I'm also a big fan of old school hash, so we'll go the opposite way. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Jen, what about your what about your comments among your patients? Is there a certain strain that's more popular yeah. among yourself? Um, I am not qualified in Illinois to mm. be a medical patient, so I have to. Um, ironic. Which is yes, it's very ironic and unfortunate because to to really get an understanding of what patient needs are, it's you know you have to go by what patients are are right. are giving me that information. Um, I would say that the high CBD strains like Harley Sue and Canna Sue are probably one of the the big sellers for us. Um, uh, Bruce Banner and um, a Blue Dream are also pretty good ones. Just kind of. Which one, Shy Blue Dream? Um, yeah, Shy Blue Dream. Just to have um, those seem to have, um, a, you know, daytime usage out of it. So people are able to have that energy, get up, do their thing, um, and kind of use that throughout the day, and then come home for something that's more sedative. But. Cool. And uh, Renzo, with your experience at the dispensary, your personal experience. Um, can you can you give us a couple of strain names you might want our users or sorry our listeners to maybe check out? Yeah, uh, so actually I went to Colorado not too long ago. Um, so while I was in Colorado, <laughs> um, I got to try a whole bunch of strains. Uh, so Tangy's pretty interesting, very citrusy. Yeah, you showed me that one. Yeah, that one's pretty cool. Uh, we do have that at the shop. Um, but yeah, some sour diesels. Classic, um, some classic. Of the, Love yeah, it. Yeah, some of the the cushions, of course, on the other side of the spectrum. Um, yeah, no, I think patients right now. I'm um, here in Chicago. I think they're they're definitely used to heavy indicas, um, given that's just what what's available on the street. But I think as we see um, as as patients continue coming in, continuing having a variety to choose from, um, I think their palates and their their, their tastes are, are continuing to evolve with, with the selection. Um, and we're starting to see um, that that taste turn into having more of an interest into lower THC sativas, for example, um, that that have a little more more nuance to their flavors um, and to their effects, for that matter. But uh, in addition to uh, to the flower stuff, uh, I think on the on the concentrate side, uh, the, the the clear products uh, from Progressive Treatment Solutions um, are pretty interesting. Uh, they have some some uh, reinf or some it's clear, so it's basically a distilled wax, um, and what its result is uh, a colorless, tasteless um, byproduct. And what they do is they infuse that with 
uh, terpenes, right? So they're, they're getting strawberries from, from Illinois um, and, and throwing it in this machine and getting these terpenes and putting those in the, uh, reintroducing that into the final solution, uh, making for uh, a strawberry taste, which is pretty amazing. Um, and patients are really responding to that. And, and mint uh, and, and in the edible side as well, we're seeing more CBD products, which is always great. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we're, we're continuing to see the, the market evolve here and, and seeing more options for patients to get the relief. I think what's really exciting is that a problem that we have with a lot of medications is patient compliance. You know, just because your doctor prescribes a patient medication doesn't mean the patient's going to take it. Doesn't mean they're going to take it at the time they're supposed to take it. Doesn't mean they're going to take it on an empty stomach or a full stomach like they're supposed to. Doesn't mean they're going to take it without alcohol. You know, it's just a lot of factors. And a patient needs to be compliant with the doctor's prescribed therapy for it to work, pretty much. Uh, with the patients that you guys have experience with, I would imagine that the compliance is much higher than your average pharmaceutical. Have you guys noticed the same? Yeah, I think I think I think patients for the most part um, are are just dying to hear stuff, man. So you tell them stuff, and they're just like they want that information. They're they're doing a lot of their own self learning. Um, um, I would say the only problem we don't have where we have problems with compliance is when we try to tell them to modulate dose. Right. Uh, a lot of times they'll be like, well, I got too stoned on mm-hmm. this. The psychoactive, the psychotropic effect was not what I wanted. Well, did you try smoking less? No. <laughs> well, and the problem is, you know, you, ha- you have a bowl this big. That's the bowl that you use. This is the bowl that you smoke out of every time and you fill it no matter what kind of, of, of herb you put into it. And so a 24% Gorilla Glue is going to be very different than a 17% Maui Waui. Right. Um, but you smoked the same amount and found the Gorilla Glue overwhelming. Well, the, the solution is to smoke less. Um, but everyone's kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, so is trial is and error the only way? How can we make this easier for patients? I mean, we work with microdosing, that concept, um, right up front. Microdosing. Uh, microdosing, which is uh, so ideal. I mean, it's just a game changer when you learn that microdosing uh, what your amount is through the day. It's and actually gotten very popular among psychedelics, mm-hmm. actually, in microdosing, but continue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but to that effect, there are still patients that don't comply. I mean, um, and we have a huge amount of people who do, and they're excited about what's going on, and they're, they are um, uh, curious about all of it, right? They're educating themselves, and then there's, just like anything else, it's not a cure-all. Right? We certainly still have patients who come in and we give them the instructions. And um, when we get that feedback and, and, you know, there is a trial and error component to it. You, we have to, the, the staff that we have, uh, we really train with that coaching mentality of you are with this one person and you're, this is a journey with that person. Ha- have, helping them be able to tune that dial of what their needs are, and that does take a little trial and error. So we we start out as conservative as we can until we know how to build up with that particular person. But that being said, there's still people who come back and say, like, well, this didn't work for me, you know, because there's still, um, well, there's a lot of factors in that, whether it's the person or if it's the 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 understanding of the medicine or or whatever. But um, it's not a you know, it's it- not a solution. It's a not a cure all. In my experience, when it doesn't work, it's because the dose is wrong. uh, Yeah, in my experience, uh, when it doesn't work, it's because the dose is wrong. Even the wrong formulation usually works a little, 
right? And so we either have to microdose, like he said, or we, you know, um, we bracket, right? I start on one end of the extreme and then I go to the mm -hmm. other end of the extreme and I work my way to the middle. Um, but usually when there's no effect, no beneficial effect for a condition that we believe there should be, um, it's, 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 it's almost always uh, dosing, either too much or too little, but usually too little. Exactly. We're also seeing patients with like traumatic brain injury where it's a big one here. Enormous TBI. doses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Enormous doses. Right. Yeah. So we're nearing the end of our interview here. I wanted to once again thank you all so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure to have you guys here at Sonic Palace in Oak Park where we are recording. And I wanted to give our closing remarks to, of course, all of you. This is your chance to get anything else out that you might want to listeners to hear about. You know, here, when we record Biolitics Studio sessions, we want to make information accessible. We want to make science accessible. Uh, the majority of this interview, minus a few edits, will be available on our website, biolitics.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. So many options. Not uh, Snapchat? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> at Biolitics, except for Instagram. Biolitics was taken. I want to know who you are. If you are the one that took <laughs> Biolitics on Instagram, reach out to me and tell me why. Uh, on Instagram, we are at biolitics.podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, we're very excited here. Uh, one of the last things I want to touch on with a few minutes we have left for Dispensary 33, guys. Um, and actually, Jen as well. You guys seem to be very up to date with your scientific literature, Richard. You especially, you know, you got you really seem to have a vast knowledge of what's on PubMed. You know, yeah. It's tell a, me about that a little bit. How did you guys get into that? I mean, what's your science background? Why, why do you know so much? And is that something you call for all cannabis caregivers to know about? Um, yeah, I think the information that most dispensary technicians have these days is 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 really bad. Um, I, I think there's not a robust training program. I think a lot of the times training programs rely on um, outdated models and, and tropes and cliches and things like that. Um, I developed a training program at uh, Dispensary 33. It took me, you know, 10 years to do it. Um, um, and, and it's because I believe in science. I, I, I have no science background outside of my other jobs. I used to be a coffee buyer, a tea buyer. So I, I studied uh, sensory perception uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, and I've, I've worked every end of this industry. I've grown, I've curated, I've extracted, I've, you know, run dispensaries. So I've, I've, I've worked in every aspect of it. So the science, in, in, in my opinion, is just a, it's just a way to think. So, um, and it's a way that I believe in thinking. Um, and, and so that's just the process we take with everything. There's a methodology to it, um, and I expect all of our staff to know it. Um, um, and we, we continually learn, right? We, we all know that research changes quite a bit. And I'm not ashamed to be like, you know what? A year ago, I thought the opposite of what I think now. Um, um, we, we see it and, and, and we test it out. We test it out because we have a safe product that we can test it out with, you know? Right. I'm not putting anyone in danger by, by being like, hey, are you willing to try this experiment for me? I think this is a dosing protocol that's going to work for you. Like, let's do this. Um, um, and then we work it out. And the training, uh, and Renzo will tell you, you know, I'm a little bit of an intense person at work. Um, and so, um, yeah, we just... We just believe in working hard. That's great. Thank you so much, Jen. Any any final comments on this topic? Um, we have at New Age Care our uh, dispensary technicians, uh, Farah and Ken, are amazing, and we've got a great uh, partnership where they really um, hone in 
with those patients. And then when those patients are ready for deeper healing into more nutritional, they kind of go to me. So just on the aspect of, um, I mean, I'm a nerd for the human body, like yeah. just how it reacts, what your physiological, you know, abilities are is a, a huge curiosity to me. So to me, my perfect job is to sit there and get inside someone's head and help them figure out what are the triggers and what are the things that are holding them back from thriving in their life. And so that combination of what we do with the dispensary side and then with the holistic advising uh, on top of it is, I think, really unique and really great. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can see us at newagecare.org or my, my website is highlynourished.com. Yes, it is. Thank you so much, Jen. It's been a real pleasure. Renzo, any final comments? Yeah, no, I think that uh, cannabis, the politics behind the cannabis, uh, plant, uh, the the, medic the medicinal side of cannabis here in Illinois, I think it's continuing to evolve. Um, and yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, I think uh, it, it's, it's been a huge benefit to patients. Um, and this, this program definitely needs to expand, um, not only for the benefit of the patient, but also for the, for the state as a whole. Um, there's a lot of tax revenue available um, and, and waiting there for, 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 for local economies to, to kind of uh, collect and, and, and put to good use. Um, but yeah, I think my, my, my whole shtick is increasing patient access and, and definitely opening up the program um, to, to communities of, of color because, yeah, those are the communities that need it the most. And, um, and, and anyone that wants to work on, on expanding access uh, let me know. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Chef Mejia 420. But yeah, Dispensary 33, check us out. Uh, we're with the first and the best dispensary in Chicago. Check us out. That's fantastic. Thank you, all of us. Thank you so much for joining us. We have Richard. We have Renzo from Dispensary 33. We have Jen King from New Age Care. It's been such a pleasure. You can also find her at highlynourished.com. Mm -hmm. And Dispensary 33 is the first dispensary in Chicago. Uh, this is Biolitics. I'm Gaurav Dubey, your founder and executive producer. This is Biolitics Science Humanized. Well, there you have it, folks. Our pilot episode of Biolitics Studio Sessions. This episode featured Renzo Mejia and Richard Park of Dispensary 33, Chicago's first medical cannabis dispensary, as well as Jen King of New Age Care Medical Dispensary in Mount Prospect. Jen King also has her own practice, which you can find at HighlyNourished.com. If you like what you heard here, then stay tuned for an all-new show called The Cannabis Report that is put together by myself and Dispensary 33. Check out our website at Biolitics.org and make sure to follow us on social media at Biolitics on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Pinterest, as well as at Biolitics.podcast on Instagram. Again. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Gaurav Dubey, and this is Biolitics, Science Humanized.